Well, if you have your Bibles, as I've already uh, uh, told you, let's turn over to Proverbs chapter 23. You'll remember last week um, we uh, put a, a really good ending on our study on the landmarks. And uh, it, was a, uh, it was a great uh, uh, little series that we had. Uh, you remember the first week I focused on the ancient landmarks out of Proverbs, and uh, we saw how that was the nation of Israel the second week. We looked at the old landmark, and uh, that was the New Testament church and the New Testament. And I, I, I told you how that you, you know, you follow all history and everything in life is built around that. Then the third week, or last week, we took time and I gave you uh, an example, or I should say examples, of how to use the landmark in history. Uh, and we kind of went through all the different uh, denominations and all the different churches. Or, you know, a question that I'm asked all the time, why are there so many different churches who believe so many different things? You know, and, and what uh, that little mini-study did was really put uh, New Testament Christianity into a perspective for you. Um, now you have a pretty good understanding where everything came from and, and how to follow it through history and, and better understand where you're at in relationship to it. You know, the key to anything in life, and it's certainly true of the Bible, but it's true of anything in life. The key is learning to apply what you know. That is so vital in everything that we do. And, uh, you know, in breaking down things that seemingly look very complex, but when you use the Bible in reality, uh, it becomes a very easy thing and a simple thing. Rather it be uh, the, uh, the complexity of life. Uh, life seems to be so complex in so many people's lives. We deal with people all the time. And uh, I think that most of you that work with me in the people ministry would agree that when people we have to deal with sometimes, not all the time, but uh, sometimes, their life is very, very complex. They have all kinds of problems. And as you look at it, I mean, you think to yourself, I know I have many times, where do you start with this? How do you even approach this? How do you work through this? But the truth of the matter is, even though life looks complex and the problems people have, when it comes to the Bible, life and the complexity become pretty simple. There's always an easy, simple answer. The problem is that people don't want to follow it. And it's also true of, you know, of history. History, as I said in our study, history is an incredibly complex subject. But when you use the landmarks, as I showed you, it becomes pretty easy to follow and pretty easy to break down. And uh, we see it in everything. And Christianity is no different. Christianity, as we saw last week, can look very complex and can be very um, a hard thing to understand. But when you put the Bible to it and use the Word of God and apply what you do know, then things that seem to be complex become pretty, pretty easy. You know, we talked about landmarks. We talked about landmarks, and yet in the Bible, Christ is referred to as the chief cornerstone. You'll find it Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, other places too. But he is, he is portrayed as the chief cornerstone. And when you build a building, when you build a building, you start with a corner, a cornerstone. And that cornerstone will be the point from which all the other parts of the building come from and tie back into and it's a thing where, uh, you know, a building you fit and you lay that cornerstone on the foundation. And then everything else you build uh, in that building will tie back to that cornerstone. 
And Christ uh, in your life and my life, uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, chapter five talks about our body being the building of God. And uh, when you build your life with Christ, with the landmarks, everything has to tie back to the chief cornerstone. In your life and my life, that will be the Christ. This is where the Jews got into trouble. And unfortunately, a lot of God's people get in trouble too. God in Christ was the chief cornerstone for the nation of Israel. He built everything around who he was. And the Bible says that the nation of Israel rejected that cornerstone, which was Christ. When Christ came down to them at the first coming of Christ, he was the cornerstone for the nation of Israel. He was the missing piece that Israel needed as their Messiah. And the Bible says they rejected him. Once they rejected him, the Bible says in the book of Matthew, that the chief cornerstone that they rejected, and you'll find this in Romans chapter 9, the chief cornerstone that they rejected now became a stumbling stone. And they tripped over Christ. The stone that God decided to give them that would make them the greatest nation on this world has ever seen became a stumbling stone that they broke their neck over. And you know, inspirationally, that's the same thing that happens to you and me. Christ is the chief cornerstone. He wants you and me to build everything in our life from that foundational cornerstone. And when we don't, it becomes our stumbling block. And we stumble over it the rest of our lives. And that's why our lives get in such a complex deal. You know, back in the day, I don't think they do this much anymore, but I remember when they built the uh, addition to the Canton Baptist Temple that was right across my house, uh, from my house, um, before they moved out on Whipple. Uh, they had original building, and then they got so large they had to build another building. And they built it in 1953. I was three years old. But I remember while they were building it, it was cold, it was a winter day. My dad walking up to check on it, and I had seen, and it's still there today, the cornerstone of that church with the date on it. And back in the day when they did a cornerstone, they don't do this anymore, but back in the day in all kinds of buildings, when they built them, they put a Bible in that cornerstone. It was like a time capsule because back in that day, they understood that the chief cornerstone was Christ and the Word of God. So you find when they're building banks or they're building libraries or they're building schools, uh, they put that cornerstone in that little, that little, in place of a brick, that little hollow area, and they put a Bible in it with the date that the building was, was built on. Things have changed and we don't do that anymore. But your life and my life has to be tied back to that chief cornerstone. Your relationship with Christ, the cornerstone will be the anchor that holds you. That wherever you go in life, when you use the landmarks, when you, when you look at everything in life, it will be the anchor that will hold you where you need to be. Now this is why I do with you what I do with the Bible. Uh, I, you hear me talk about this all the time, and I know that probably many of God's people don't understand the concept in its entirety. It sounds like an easy thing to grasp, but in reality it probably isn't. But this is what I do what I do with you in the Bible. I'm trying to get you to the place in your Christian life where you have a, listen to me, a working knowledge of the Word of God. What does that mean? It means that making the Bible work for you. Making the Bible simplify everything in life for you. Making the Bible do the work for you in every aspect of your life so you don't have to do it. That the Word of God will do it for you. 
And I use this all the time, and it's a, you know, it's a, uh, in, in trying to teach you. And yet, there's another verse that I want to give you that goes along with everything last week. And even though we're in Proverbs 23 today, you're going to see the similarities tying back to the last three weeks. Luke chapter 16, verse 15, is a great verse that I use all the time. It's one of those principles that when you have it down and you use it, it makes the Bible work for you. Luke chapter 16, verse 15 simply says, That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. How true that is. That is a principle that will work in everything in life. You never look for the truth in something on how glamorous it is, or how big it is, or how beautiful it is. You always look for the truth in something that is real. And you know, one of the, that principle is such a great principle. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. If the world thinks it's great, it stinks. And in Christianity, if all of Christianity thinks it's wonderful and great, there's something wrong with it. That verse ties into a great principle that everything that God has ever done down through the history of man, the world, or certainly the Bible... It's always been done with a remnant. It's never been done with the majority. When God wanted to restart and jumpstart earth back in Genesis chapter 6, and he brought a flood upon the earth, he wiped out the total population, probably 8 billion people, and he started over with a remnant, Noah and his family. When he goes down, uh, takes in Exodus chapter uh, 1, when he takes the nation of Israel down into Egypt, they go down as a remnant. In the, in, in, in the book of Judges, after they're in the land, when, when Gideon is up against the Midianites, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of them, God defeats them with 300, just a remnant. In the tribulation period, in the tribulation period, you're going to find that when it's all said and done and the Lord comes back, out of the whole nation of Israel and out of the whole world, only a remnant gets saved. God always does what He does through a remnant to a very small pocket of people. And then he expands it from there. That's why the Bible says that which is highly esteemed among men. If everybody thinks it's wonderful, it's not. And I say that's true of Christianity today. This is why I say what I say to you sometimes. And I know some of you look at me like I'm nuts about the fact that in Christianity today, all you've got is a remnant. Because God always does what he does through a remnant. You've got Thousands of churches, humongous churches, beautiful churches, churches filled with thousands of people. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And it's a thing where uh, it's so true. The only great thing in Christianity that we have (laughs) is the book that God gave us. And everything has to flow back to that and from that. Now today, we're going to move into chapter 23 of the book of Proverbs. And again, uh, we will uh, look at a passage uh, from a doctrinal inspiration, a uh, inspirational inspiration, and uh, again, a historical perspective pretty much takes care of itself. I want to read three verses in Proverbs chapter 23, and then we're going to look at those three verses. It says this, When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee. And put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meats. 
Caleb, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the offering for me today? I mean, on the message today? We're going to take up two offerings today. We didn't get enough in the first one, so we're going to run it by again. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Amen. Now, the verse says, we're going to look at these one at a time, and we're going to kind of open them up a little bit. Uh, it says, when thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee. Now, the verse is one that when you see it and understand it, it will give you the ability to really develop some discernment in your life, be able to see things uh, in, a, in a special way. When he's saying, consider what is before you diligently, He's not talking about food. And I know at face value we look at that and we get the idea that, uh, um, and I know how we would look at it. We all like to eat. I like to eat. And I, I know how we, we we'd, uh, just take that verse. Uh, it is, it, it's like we go invited off to eat with somebody or over to their house and it says, consider diligently what is before you. Wow, look at that steak. Wow, look at that lobster. Wow, look at that chicken. Wow, look at that pizza. Not what he's talking about. No, he's talking about looking beyond the layout of food. Sometimes something that's laid out in front of you can be a diversion of something else that is a hidden agenda. And he says, he says, look beyond the laying out of food and 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 look and don't look at the appearance, but see what is behind this particular feast. And you know, this brings up a great principle that uh, I use in the Bible, and uh, I try to teach it to you, and that is the difference between seeing and observing. You know, you can use uh, this principle in verse 1, really all three verses, in everything that we do. You know, when we see something, uh, we just see what's before you. But to observe something is a process. It's a lot like, I, I was with a guy one time, and Something happened, and uh, he got kind of, uh, somebody uh, said something to him that he didn't, uh, kind of tricked him a little bit. And he said to himself, you know, and he just was speaking to himself, but I was there. But I, I never forgot it, and it, it, really, it, it, it really opened up some things to me. He says, oh, okay, so that's how the snow drifts. And I thought to myself, that's exactly what I'm talking about today. You can see a snowfall, but after the snowfall, you observe how the snow fell, and you see the drifts. You can look at things in life in a capsule shot and not seeing it, but observing it is a process. I, most of you don't remember this, but back in the 50s, they made the Sherlock Holmes movies. And the guy that played Sherlock Holmes was a guy by the name of Basil Rathbone. He was an English guy. Tremendous actor. And you know who Sherlock Holmes was. And uh, I was just a little kid back then, and they were on television, and I'd watch it every Saturday afternoon. He was the early form of Columbo. 
And everybody can identify with who Columbo was. Columbo was a detective that was a klutz, and yet he, he dressed shabby, he looked like a bum, but he could figure out a crime scene like nobody's business. Well, Sherlock Holmes wasn't a bum. He was a very sophisticated guy. But he could walk into a crime scene, and when all the Scotland Yard was scratching their head and trying to figure out uh, what was going on, he would just look around, and he would put the whole crime scene together, and he would do what nobody else could do. I've often thought that's what real Christianity is about. That's what real a Christian does when they work with people or they deal with their own personal life and the decisions and the situations we allow ourselves to get into. He said one time, and I remember it, it's so many things that I heard as a kid on television that I just found myself into the Bible. I remember it. It was called the, it was called the Scandal in Bohemia. That was the episode. And they're working on this crime. And his, his partner in his detective business was, was a guy by the name of uh, uh, Dr. Watson, Sherlock Holmes and, and, and Watson. And Watson isn't as fast as Holmes is. And it's almost like uh, he's always trying to learn, and, and Sherlock Holmes is always trying to explain to him, and uh, he just never gets it. And where uh, and they would use it as a, in the in the in the movies, they would use it as a counterplay, where Doctor Watson uh, would would do something or say something that was dumb and stupid. Doc Holmes would correct him on it, and everybody would see the contrast between a guy who does not see what's going on and a guy who does. And he said to Watson one time, and I never forgot this, they're looking at a crime scene that nobody can figure out. <coughs> Sherlock Holmes is looking all around the place, and Watson's saying a bunch of stuff that, you know, and he looks to him and he says, you see, you see Watson, you see Dr. Watson, but you must learn to observe, for the two are not the same. And I thought to myself when he said that, wow, that's as good a Bible as you're going to get. Because that's what we need to do. I mean, we need to learn to observe. To learn to observe is to look beyond what you have right in front of you. Because you can see something and that's just a snapshot. But to observe something is a process. It's like the snow drifting. Oh, that's how the snow drifts. In other words, you don't always see how it's going to drift when you're seeing it fall. But once it falls, you'll be able to see how it drifted. And the key is, before it gets to that point, to see the drifts and see how it's going to fall. You know, in the people ministry, my number one goal in everything that we do, we had the people ministry yesterday and we had a tremendous time in it. And, and uh, you begin to see how I just, that's what I try to do. I try to teach you this invaluable lesson. You know, it's so true in dealing with people. And we want to help people. We want, to, we want people uh, who come in who have all kinds of problems in their life. Uh, but you have to get to the place where you really understand what you really got, not what you see. And it's a, it's a tremendous ability Somebody says, well, that's a spiritual gift. No, 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 you're wrong. That is just a natural ability that comes from learning to observe instead of just seeing. You know, somebody said, well, winning people to Christ is a spiritual gift. No, it's not. Winning people to Christ is the natural, the natural thing that happens through an intimacy that you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll just take place 
in its own time in a natural way. And learning to observe is not a spiritual gift. It's not something that God gave this person or, and didn't give you. Not at all. Learning to observe comes from you understanding how to let the Bible work for you. How to let the Bible become in your life and not just save your soul, not just get your verse for the day, but actually allow it to work for you to show you the process of, the, of observing something. You know, observing any situation you're dealing with through the principles and the flow of the Word of God. You know, I know you know this for you. Some of you have been in the people ministry with me now and beyond that for 10, 15, 20 years, and we've worked together. And so I know that many of you know this is true. Many of you are learning this truth. That when you start to deal with people, things that appear in their life are not always a reality. People will project one thing and in reality be something else. You know, uh, it's a thing where uh, I've seen people come through my ministry, men and women, who on the outside they gave an absolute incredible appearance of what a they talked the right way they 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 had all the lingo down they uh, they 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 you would look at them and you would think that wow they are one of the greatest Christians you ever met in your life, but through the process of observing in time, you find out that's not true. And uh, there are people that come into any ministry that uh, you know they're just a. They're just a, a textbook case that you just want to take them, love them, give them the Bible, and they just grow and off they go. But you find that's not always true. And in dealing with people, you're going to find some people who, as you look at them and see them, they look like one thing, but when you observe them, there's a dark side there that it just doesn't come out when you just first meet them. The backbone of our people ministry in dealing with people the backbone of that that we base everything on is what we call in the people ministry the Solomon Principle. And that's found over there in 1 Kings chapter 3. And I use it all the time, and I've told you about it before. Most of you probably uh, understand it, or at least if you forgot it, you'll pick it up as I start to tell the story. But Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. And I remember reading this story years ago before I ever really got into the Bible to the depth that I, I'm into it now. And I remember, you know, the Bible says that two, two harlots come, two women come to Solomon and they're harlots. And both of these women had a baby. And uh, one of the babies died. Now Solomon doesn't know these women at all. He doesn't know them. Uh, he doesn't know anything about them. Uh, he don't know who's telling the truth. And so they come into him, and the one woman says, we both had babies, and the other night she rolled over on her baby and smothered it, and while I was sleeping, she came and took my baby, and now she has my baby, and she put the dead baby in my bed. And the other woman says, oh, that's not true. That's not true. Absolutely. She's lying to you, king. I'm telling you what, it's just the other way around. She rolled over on her baby. She came and took my baby. You see the dilemma? Hey, and I want to tell you something. When you start to deal with people, you're going to find yourself in situations just like that. Not with a baby and then somebody rolling over on them, but with people who say, this is what really happened. This is what, and you know what? Solomon didn't know who these women were. He didn't know who was lying. 
And when people come into any church and you know, they want to present themselves one thing, the Bible says prove all things. There's a proving process. That proving process is observing. Not just seeing what you like, what you want. You know, a lot of people will discard the truth of something just because they want to believe what they want to believe. They need this to be true. And they just cast aside all of the principles because of the fact that they, they, they want to believe that. And, 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 and look, I am one of the greatest believers in people that you have ever met in your life. I believe in people. Amen. I want to believe in people. But i got to be honest, I don't believe any of you this morning. No, I'm just kidding. I believe in people. But I have learned that I can hang myself out there, want to believe in people and give people a chance. Even when I know down the line someplace, some of them are going to come back and hose me simply because I let the Bible do my work for me. And the Solomon principle is one of the greatest principles in dealing with people you're ever going to find. It will always show you what is real versus what is not real. So here's how the story goes. These two ladies get in a cat fight over the kid. And Solomon says, I know how to solve this problem. So he calls for a sword, and he tells the guard there, cut that baby in half, give half to her and half to who. You guys can decide which half you want. Cut that baby right in half, give you half and you half. Well, immediately, the real mother says, oh, no, 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 no. If that's what's going to happen, let her take it. I'm not killing my baby. The, ba- the, mo- the woman whose baby it wasn't said, yeah, cut it in half. Solomon, through an observation, through a process, found the truth. And he says, that's the mother right there. And yet in that story, the Bible says that he produced a sword, and the sword produced the truth. And for you and for me, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 that the Word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. Somebody comes into our church, any church, any ministry, and wants to say, I'm this, when in reality they're this, I don't have to make that determination. I don't have to make a judgment on them. All i got to do is what Solomon did and put them under the sword and the Word of God, and you're either submitting yourself to it or running from it, will always produce who you really are. That's observing. Let the book do the work for you. Why am I going to get up to this guy and say, I think you're a phony? Why am I going to get up and say, hey, I, 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 I think you're no good. I think you're this. I think you're that. You know, all that's going to ensue as an argument. What am I going to say to a girl? Well, I think you're not telling me the truth. I think, you're, I think you're lying. I don't think you're doing what's right. All that is going to get into a fight over they are or they're not. Just like Solomon. The easiest thing is put you under the sword and then watch what you do with the book. End of story. That's the difference between seeing and observing. That is a tremendous principle that I try to teach you and to get you to understand that. And, and you know, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. Now, that being said, doctrinally, this will be a tribulation context. The ruler here will be the Antichrist. The people at the dinner will be the nation of Israel, or at least the leaders of Israel. 
And what you have here is a picture of a trap. The Antichrist makes a false covenant with the Jews. For the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And makes them feel like all is okay. He pretends to be their friend. He pretends that he's spiritual and loves God just like they do. Bible says in Proverbs chapter 2 verse 16 and again in Proverbs chapter 7 verse 5 <coughs> that he uses great words to flatter them. Oh, Bob, you're one of the greatest preachers I ever heard. Oh, this church is just so, so does so much for me. And yet the warning in Proverbs 20, 19, 28, 23, and 29 verse 5 says to be careful when somebody wants to constantly flatter you. <coughs> He gives them a fake sense of peace and safety. See 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. First three and a half years, he makes them feel like they're safe and it's peace and Israel now is finally, finally going to get everything that they've ever wanted. And here he puts on a feast where he can draw them into his trap. And then the Bible says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, at the end of that three and a half years, when he's made them feel completely at ease. In Revelation chapter 12 and 13, and Matthew chapter 24 and verse 25, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, with the abomination of desolations, he turns on them, the whole thing is a sham, and the feast that he set before them was nothing more than a ploy to bring them in. Now he wants to destroy them. This deception, this feast, as I said, it's a ploy. It's a counterfeit. It's a total deception to gain their confidence and to make them feel at ease and trust him. And then he wants to wipe them out. Now, we talked about using the Bible, a working knowledge of the Bible, making the Bible work for you. Now, the Jews should have known better. If they would have been using the Bible the way that they should, they would have never got deceived. And I want to tell you something. I know I'm in the doctor application, but I am not going to miss this. If you will use the Bible that God has given you, you won't get deceived either. Amen. Somebody says, well, you don't know what she did to me. She, uh, she just did. Uh, you don't know what he did. And, uh, he didn't do, she and he didn't do anything to you that you didn't allow because you didn't observe. You just jumped right in. You never considered one principle. And then we want to complain about what so-and-so did to me, or what this girl did, or what this guy did. At the end of the day, you put yourself in that situation because you did not follow and observe. You just saw what you wanted to see. You believed what you wanted to hear. You didn't use one scripture. And when somebody gave them to you, we were the problem. I know how it works. The Jews should have known better. You say, how say? Because throughout the Old Testament, they were given examples. Just like I give you. They were given examples of exactly where they're at. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 28, a man goes to a banquet, Ammon, one of David's boys, and he's murdered. You flip back into 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 33, and Saul is at dinner with his own. He almost kills his own son. 
And in Esther chapter 7 verse 9, you have Haman who wants to kill Mordecai. And they have a feast and a banquet. And he comes there with a plan to destroy Mordecai. But he winds up getting hung himself. So the Jews, most likely like you and me, were not using the Bible that they had. They weren't looking at the stories and the examples that are found in the Word of God and realizing that, you know what? I, I remember a, a couple of stories in the Bible where they had a feast and somebody got killed. Maybe I just better not jump into this thing too rashly. David was great at this. I remember one time, and David's completely out of fellowship. He's about as far from God as he could ever get. Somebody comes in to him and he says, King says they just fought a battle and they got their rear ends kicked in the battle and, and three or four guys got killed. And somebody comes in and he says, David said, how'd the battle go? And he said, it didn't go very good. We lost four guys. What happened? When they got over there against the wall, they threw something down from the wall and it killed him. You know what David said? Didn't you read back in the Old Testament where that happened back there? You should have known better. You know what David is doing? He's using the Bible he's got. You know what we don't do? We don't use the Bible we have. You want to complain to me about the struggles in your life, your ups and downs for the last, what, 10, 15, 20 years? You're in, you're out, you're up, you're down. You have all kinds of struggles. Don't blame it on anybody other than yourself. You got the book that will do all the work for you. You just don't want to use it. And I'm telling you, all three of those guys, just to add injury, insult to injury, all three of these stories here, every one of these three guys is the type of the Antichrist. Eighteen types in the Bible in the Old Testament, every one of these guys. Absalom killed Ammon, Saul tried to kill Jonathan, and Haman tried to kill Mordecai. All three of them are types of Antichrist who put a feast together to kill somebody who's the type of the nation of Israel. Voila! Now, we have a Bible that is filled with stories that apply to you and to me, just like that, that will keep you from ever making a tragic mistake in your life. And we just blow, blow it off. This verse is telling the Jew in Proverbs 23, 1, Watch out, there's more here than just a feast. So he says, consider diligently what's before you, because there's more than chicken fried steak. Now, jumping back to the inspirational. This is standard operational procedure. SOP, we call it in the Army, uh, in the world today. In the corporation world, they're always, they're always doing things for people. Um, you know, they're always taking clients out to eat. The corporation will buy tickets to the Chiefs games or the, or the Royals game. You know, they probably don't buy them to the Chiefs game, but they, they buy them to the Royals game. I read a story in a newspaper here at the end of the Chiefs season that a uh, guy called up there and uh, he, 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 he left his Chiefs tickets, season tickets, on the seat of his car and went in someplace and forgot. And he came out in a panic and the window was broken. And he's thinking, oh, no. And when he got over there, he found out that the window was broken and somebody else had thrown two more tickets in on top of his. (laughs) 
true in the corporate world. They'll whine and dine you. They'll take you out. They'll take you to all these places, you know, to the great Ruth Chris down there in the plaza, you know. They'll take you out there and you'll sit around and talk and, and they'll buy you dinner. And they're not doing it because they like you. They're doing it because they want to make a business deal with you. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's business. That's a modern-day corporate America. That's the way we do things. That's the democratic way. Feed them and fleece them. I get that. But you see it in politics. Washington's filled with it. you got the lobbyists. you got the special interest groups. And all of those are taking out senators and congressmen. They're, they're buying them dinner. They're buying them this. They're giving them that. And I get it. It's all, it's all a sham. They could care nothing about that. What they want is they want something back from them. Come to a free dinner. I'm going to tell you something. This isn't in the Bible, but I'm going to tell you anyhow. This is Bob's philosophy of 67 years of living on planet Earth. Outside of God's salvation, there ain't nothing free in this world. There's always a price tag to it somewhere. Somewhere. You know, and it's a thing where, uh, you know, uh, politicians do it to get to make a deal. Come to a dinner. Free dinner. I get apps on my phone all the time. I get flyers in the mail. Come to a free dinner. But they want to sell you a timeshare down in Arkansas someplace. <laughs> That's how it works. Free dinner at the big hotel downtown. Call right now. Reserve your spot. Seats are limited. They want to get you to invest your money in their investment programs. I get a call on the phone and some guy over there, you know, he says, he says, is this Bob Alexander? And I say, yes, it is. He says, your neighbors have recommended you to come to our banquet we're having to hear about our new burglar alarm system. And I said to him, right now I know you're lying. He says, what do you mean? I says, my neighbors hate me. They would never do anything to help me. If anything, they would put up a sign in my front yard, there is no alarm system here, rob this house. <laughs> Some of you oldies will remember this. Remember back in the day, in churches, we used to have stewardship banquets? How many remember the stewardship banquets of the old days? Oh, yeah, yeah. We had a church of 2,500 people back there, you know, and every year, around this time of the year, they'd be ready for the new budget year, you know, and they had all kinds of projects and programs they wanted to, they wanted to do. And so they would have a stewardship banquet. And the stewardship banquet would be, oh, and you would get up in your Sunday school class and you promote it. It's going to be a free dinner. It's going to be a great time. We're going to have special music. We're going to have a great, it, the food was the most terrible food in the planet. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This is a psychological problem that I do have. But it's a good thing for you. All the times that we eat, let me ask you, we had Easter dinner. Was it not good? Amen. It was good. And we had, we had, uh, we had, uh, uh, we have a Memorial Day uh, thing. Is that, is not the ribs the best you ever ate in your life? Amen. You have all the food you want. Anytime we eat here, we always have food. And, and, and we don't charge you nothing. I've been in so many churches where they'll charge you $5 a piece and you get tube steak. You know what tube steak is? It's a hot dog. One. $5 for one hot dog. Well, we give hot dogs out on the street for nothing. 
No, I know. I know I charge you a dollar for the, for the Memorial Day picnic, but come on. You think that covers anything? Why do you do that then? Because you're Baptist, and I know if Baptists pay a dollar for something, they're going to come to it. That's how cheap Baptists are. Anytime we have something here, you're going to eat like a king. Absolutely. You know why that is? Because that's my psychological disorder. I was raised all my Christian life and going to banquets that were put on by a lot that was a morsel of bread. And I want you to eat because I know that eating is the way to your heart. Now you laugh at that, but you know over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he has the Lord's Supper, before you have the Lord's Supper, you're supposed to get right with everybody what's wrong. And there's two aspects to the Lord's Supper. There's the Lord's Supper, which is a legitimate meal, and then there is the actual communion where you, you take the bread and the grape juice and, and do that part of it. But the, the, the problem they had in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that people weren't coming to the church and bringing any food and nobody had anything to eat and it was putting everybody on edge. The concept behind it is there's some things that before you go to the Lord to take communion, there's some things that you've got to make right with people. And you may not want to do it. But you know how you get in a bad mood before you eat? Am I the only one who's confessing this today? You get irritable, touchy, things bother you. And then you go and sit down and they bring out this whole cow on a plate with onion rings and salad. And you sit down there and after you eat, all the world is right. Bob, Bob, your house just burned down. Do you have any more of them rolls? <laughs> Can I have some more ketchup for my steak? <laughs> you know why he does that? Because he knows that once we are, there's some things we got to get right with each other. And he knows that, not me, I ain't. But when you sit down and you eat, and now you're full, then you're thinking, you're happy. I just think, oh, what the heck? You know what? I, you know what? I, 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 let me just tell you. I, I, I want you to forgive me. I, you know what? I, I'm the one that poisoned your dog. I am sorry. You know, and 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 that's the mindset because the way the way. Hey, how many times have you women heard heard the way to a man's heart is through his what stomach? How many times have you heard the old adage, an army marches on its stomach? You feed them. You feed people good, you can get them to do whatever you want to do. And this is why most Baptist churches, nobody does anything. You get tube steak all the time. Cheap hot dogs. One. 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 And it looks like it's shriveled. It's been there. They had it from the last stewardship banquet. And so we'd have this banquet. People would come to it. And they'd feed you, have nice music, and then the pastor would get up. And it was a great time and a free meal right to the commitment cards got passed out. Then you're supposed to write down what you're going to give. And they know that if they just had a big meeting, preached the Word of God, and then passed out the card, they'd get squat. But if they feed you good, the way to your checkbook is through your stomach. You get feeling good. You think, oh, this was a good meal. Well, I'm happy. Yeah, where before I was only going to give $5. Now I'm giving 6 I'm really into it. <laughs> I know how it works. 
Most churches want everything from you and will give you nothing back. They exist only for what you can do for them. A true church will give you everything and ask for nothing back, other than what you give to the Lord. They exist to give to you, not you to give to them. But food will always be the key. They always will. I mean, this was the nation of Israel's problem. Uh, we don't think about, we think about the word lust. Uh, we think about uh, uh, sex. We think about uh, adultery. We think about fornication. We think about all those things. Most of the time, we don't think about the word lust in relationship to food. But you know that when God dealt with the nation of Israel on their problems, he never talked about the other stuff. He always dealt with the fact that they were lusting after food and drink. That was their lust. He said over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and 7, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. You know what it was? The people sat down to eat and to drink. Now, He says in Psalm chapter 78 that the nation of Israel was tempting God in their heart, asking God for meat to satisfy their lust. In the Roman Empire, a Gentile nation, they, 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 they had food orgies. They had all kinds of orgies, but they had food orgies. And they, would, they had these big banquet halls, and they would, they would come in there, and this is going to get gross now, they would come in there, and they would have all the food that they could want, and they would stuff themselves and stuff themselves, and they couldn't eat anymore. Then adjacent to that, they had what they called a vomitorium. Yes. Yes. This is where... Didn't know I knew sign language, did you? You got to see me when somebody pulls out in front of me on the freeway. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, vomitoriums. They ate till they were going to bust, and then they went in and threw up so they could go back and eat some more. You say, I wouldn't do that. No, we just eat all we can, walk around the block, and come back and eat some more. We're going to give up what we just ate. But it's, it's, it's a lust in the Bible. He says in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4 and 5, that the children of Israel fell a lusting after flesh. They got hanging out with a mixed multitude. And they said, they got lusting after wanting flesh to eat. They said, all we got is this old dry manna to eat. They fell a lusting. So we find that that's a natural process. And that is something that, this is why America has a, has a, an epidemic today of obesity. It's unbelievable. And it's a thing where we think of, we think of adultery, we think of drunkenness, as sins, we, but we don't think of overeating and gluttony. And yet the Bible puts it squarely right on that concept. So food is the, is the passion by which we all want to exist. And why do you think that they have these restaurants coming up all over the place? I mean, uh, they know how to get to you. They put those, you go, even we go to that goofy little place after, after the uh, mission. What's it called out there? Uh, Culver's. You notice how that they put food out there that, on the plate to show you what it is, to entice you? That stuff's been sitting there for a week. 
And if you don't have much money, you could probably buy that and eat it. But it's, it's there, and they want you to see what it looks like. Did you ever, <coughs> did you ever see <coughs> the marquees as you're going through the drive through McDonald's, what a Big Mac looks like? And then when you open it up, do you see what it looks like then? You're coming through that line, and you're hungry, and boy, you look over there, and there is the biggest, plumpest burger, sesame seed buns, cheese, special sauce, dripping out the side, stacked that high, and you're saying to yourself, I want a Big Mac. It comes, you pull over, anticipation. Oh, you saw, you should have observed, you saw. <clears throat> and you pull aside, and nobody's looking, and you're going to get both hands on it and put it on your face. You open it up. I know. Look at verse 2. And put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Now, I like when it says things like this, because this is where a lot of our quote-unquote sayings come from. That's because, in this case, doctrinally, uh, in many cases, inspirationally, uh, to use a popular phrase that you is built on this verse here, if you accept and eat uh, this meal, uh, you're basically cutting your own throat. See? That's where that comes from. And if you accept and eat this meal, you're basically committing suicide. And this brings up a great principle for us uh, in life in general. Many times, most of the times, if not all of the time, we, because we don't use the Bible, we don't have a working knowledge of the Scriptures, we find ourselves in situations where we allow people to create a situation or a circumstance and then shove us into it. Many times we just run into it. And we make the terrible mistake that there are some people out there, some men and some women, who will use you for their own personal gain. And when you allow them to use you, we wound up getting hurt in it. And then we want to blame them. We want to blame this girl or this guy or this circumstance or this situation. Hey, if you're saved, God gave you a Bible that would do all of that work for you. You don't have to make an assessment based on what you see. You can step back and observe and use the Solomon principle and find out if the light side really has a dark side. And by deceiving us through the deception of what appears to be that not really is true, when we allow it, then, uh, you know, we, we, we get clobbered. And it affects us spiritually. Uh, ultimately, it, those things always come back to uh, the place you ought to go to get what you need is the last place you go where you replace God's church, God's Bible, and the Holy Spirit of God with everything else in your life, which only adds to your issues. Now, you can't miss the doctrinal application here of putting a knife to your throat because in the tribulation, that's where all this feasting and this false stuff and this uh, ploy and this deception leads to. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 says that the Jew in the tribulation actually gets his head cut off 
They actually take a knife and cut his head off. It says they're beheaded for the witness of Christ in Revelation 24. So you can see where all this fits right into that. Have you ever noticed how exact the Bible is with everything it says? And there isn't anything that it says that you can't find a paper trail going right back to some great principle. Now look at verse 3. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meats. Now there's what you need to observe. Most people are just looking at the feast. Most people are just looking at the guy. Most people are just looking at the girl. They're hearing the story. And they're being deceived. Now, as I said, doctrinally all this will be the Antichrist and the Jews and the tribulation, the devil preparing a feast, a false banquet, seemingly to give you food, but in truth to deceive you and destroy you. The Bible says deceitful meats. I, I love every, pay attention to every word in the Bible. And I like that phrase, deceitful meat, because that opens up another whole study. And inspirationally, I just got to say this and show you this. But anyway, um, the text says, sitting down to eat a feast with a ruler and not diligently considering that the meat that is put before you is deceitful. You know, in the Bible, meat is always a picture of Bible doctrine. It is. And the Bible, meat is a picture of Bible doctrine. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. The Bible says strong meat belongs to them that are full of age. And when you get to a mature place in your life where you really can do something for God, it's because of the meat that you have, the doctrine that you know. And yet the Bible tells us in Psalms 109 verse 10 that there's somebody that is getting their bread, type of the word of God, out of desolate places. It's somebody sitting down to eat at the table with the Word of God and fellowshipping, expecting to get a feast, and yet instead they get stale old moldy crumbs that mean nothing to your life. The deceitful meat in an inspirational that people are dining at, thinking they're going to get a feast from God in reality, eating out of a garbage can, will be your NIV, your ASV, and your RSV, and all the other translations out there. I mean, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says, if you read it, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Sup, sup, S-U-P, sup. That's supper, eating with him. And in that place in Revelation 3, 20, that's the church at a closed door. Christ can't even get in his own church to have supper with them. But boy, if you put your ear to the door, they're sure munching on something in there. It's deceitful meat. It isn't the Word of God. In the Old Testament tabernacle, boy, what a picture that is. <clears throat> when the Bible talks about that the, uh, all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. Not finished, furnished. Like furniture? That's because when you go back to the tabernacle, you have a picture of your life with Christ, and in that are seven pieces of furniture that when you get the meat of the Word of God in your life, these are the furnishings you get. You know what one of them is? Table of the shoe bread. Over there on the side of the tabernacle was a table <clears throat> overlaid with gold. And on that, they baked fresh bread. 
every day, every morning, <clears throat> that bread had to be baked fresh. And they laid it out in an interesting way. There was 12 loaves of bread. And so they put one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Twelve. One for each tribe of the nation of Israel because salvation of the Jews. And Romans chapter 3 says the oracles are guarded with the Jews. So there's twelve. Now, it's just a wild coincidence, I guess, that Wonder Bread used to tell you that they would build your body, eat their bread, twelve ways. See, back to the Bible. So, <coughs> salvation is of the Jews, <coughs> oracles of God are come from the Jews, so there's twelve. But he lays it out, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, showing you that the bread of life is going to be in six, six, sixty-six books that you've got in your Bible. And it's on a table. That table is a table of the fellowship that you, every day of your life, can come and eat at that table and fellowship with the bread of God's Word. And learn the Bible and get meat, doctrine, that is not deceitful. You know, the Bible, the Word of God, is likened to food. And uh, when you come down through it, you'll find, as I've already said, in Hebrews 5.12, the Bible is likened to meat. Then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it's likened to, it's likened to milk. Then in Luke 4.4, 4, it's likened to bread. Then over there in Proverbs 7.2, it's likened to apples. You know why I, I, I will stay here till Jesus comes back and I'm not interested in buying a big pavilion someplace or a big building, a big building? You know why? Because we are right where God wanted us to be. And if you don't know that, it's because not only you're not observing, but you're not even seeing. Every time you drive into this place and out of this place, there's a sign right there that says the Apple Center. I'm staying where the apple is. Amen, Amen is right, ma'am. Sister. <clears throat> John 4 is like in the water. In Psalms 119, 103, it's like in the honey. And in Psalm 78, verse 24, it's like in the vegetables. Let's put it to the test. You know how satisfied you feel after you go to Ruth Crisps? Or you go down to On the Border? Taco Bell, Arby's, those great places where you sit down, when you walk in there, you're hungry, you're weak, you're despondent, and when you walk out, you feel like the six million dollar man because you have fulfilled one of your lusts, you ate. And the satisfaction that comes from eating a good meal, I'm going to tell you something, spiritually speaking, the only satisfaction you'll ever really have in your life that's worth anything is having a good meal at the table of the fellowship eating these seven things. Let me show you how they work. Meat. There's your doctrine. Milk. There's your discipleship, one and two. Basic Bible that we give you. Bread. You know what bread is? Bread is a stable of life. Those are the principles of the Word of God that will stabilize your life. Then you have apples and honey. Those are the sweet things of the Bible. Those are the things that you just enjoy the Bible. Sitting down there and eating apples. Sitting down there with honey. The sweet things of the Word of God. 
sitting down there and just enjoying the fruit of it. Ah, oh, no, no, there's times that you don't want to go after doctrine. There's times that you don't want to even go through your basic Bible. There are times you want to sit down and just enjoy the apples and the honey. Then he's likened to water. You know what water does? Water does something that nothing else on planet Earth can do. I mean, I know we have a lot of substitutes for water, but there's no substitute for water. <clears throat> I know they have Coca-Cola and they call it the real thing, but it isn't the real thing. It's a syrupy old thing that you drink down there that just makes you more thirsty. I know some of you people like to drink iced tea. I've never had a glass of iced tea in my life. Don't plan on it. Don't plan on it. Iced tea is a phony. It's not really going to quench your thirst. You'll drink it and drink it and drink it. And I know we got all kinds of things. You guys walk around drinking those power drinks. I don't have a problem with that. I bought stock in it. I'm, drink all you want. I want to make all the money. Uh, you walk around and you think that that's going to... Those things don't quench your thirst. They don't even give you any power. And if they do give you power, where do you come down off of it? I mean, it's just like they don't work for you. There's only one thing on this planet that will quench your thirst. And it's water. And I'm going to tell you, God's people go through everything in life. And God's people, in a spiritual sense, they go through everything in life. They want to they have everything uh, that they, they, instead of the Word of God. They think that they're going to quench their thirst for life with apple juice, or grape juice, or a Coke, or a Sprite, or this, or that, or a cup of coffee. Forget what I said about coffee. Or tea, or whatever. <laughs> All these substitute drinks that everybody takes and drinks don't really leave you satisfied. There's only one thing that satisfies you, not only in the physical world, but also in the spiritual world, and that is the water, the Word of God. And then you have vegetables. You know what vegetables are good for? Your eyesight. Vegetables, eat a lot of vegetables, it improves your eyesight, keeps eye disease down. So all of these things that the Bible is in these seven things are things that will really add to you. And you can feast anytime. I was talking to John Christensen, back here in the Christensen kids, uh, they go on these cruises, uh, which uh, I, I never do because I, I'm afraid of sharks. And you'd think there aren't sharks big enough to eat that cruise ship. You don't know what's down on the bottom of those things. <laughs> but they told me, John told me, and this is, you can eat anytime you want. You get up 2 o'clock in the night and go down in there and you can eat whatever you want. The thing is filled. You don't have to call somebody and bring something up. You just put on your jammies and walk down there, and there's, your, there's, your, there's everything you could ever want. Two o'clock in the morning, right? One o'clock in the morning. You think you just eat during the morning. No, no. Anytime you want, you can go down there and eat, and you can eat as much as you want 24-7. You know, you can do the same thing with the Word of God. There's no, there's no ding, ding, dinner, dong, bell for what you can eat with God. You can have all you want. There's no ding-dongs that keep you from reading it. There's a lot of ding-dongs that will not read it. Come and dine. The master calleth. Come and dine. You can feast at Jesus' table anytime. Now, these deceitful meats in Proverbs 23.3 all showed up around the turn of the century. And, uh, you know, I've told you before about the neo-Orthodox movement and, and the uh, neo-evangelical uh, movement, and this is where all the new translations have their roots from. And in neo-evangelism, they wanted to take the Bible from the common man and put it back in scholarship, and they accomplished that. The neo-Orthodox movement was one that they wanted to take 
the Bible, and as the world changed and got worse, they wanted the Bible to change with the world. In other words, they did not want an absolute standard. And the world believes in evolution, so the world is evolving. So the neo-orthodoxy, here's the science behind it. Neo-orthodoxy is an evolving religion where as society gets worse, you have to change your message to fit society. Where 100 years ago, homosexuality and lesbian and gay marriage was wrong. Now it's right. So you change your sermon and you change everything to go along with it. That's how it works. It's evolving with the society. So you've got to have an evolving Bible. You've got to have a Bible that evolves every three or four years to keep up with the evolving church. You know, our Constitution is, to show you an example, our Constitution is called a living document. And by that, it means that, that when the founding fathers wrote it, they wrote it with the intent that as you wanted to add laws to it or take laws from it, that there was a process by which you could do that. And uh, you didn't take away from what was the standard, but as things had to add to it, the things to, as the world got bigger and whatever, you could do that. But then they come in now and they want to take that same phrase, the Constitution is a living document, and now here's how they interpret that and here's what the liberals do with it. They, not, they don't want to just take and add to the laws and take away from it in a legal way. They want to now go back now to the founding fathers and they want to determine that the founding fathers didn't mean what they said when they said it, that if they were alive today, they wouldn't say what they said. Your greatest example of that is the Second Amendment, where in the Constitution it says you have a right to a militia to keep them well and bear arms. They're saying now, the founding fathers knew that. The founding fathers knew that every man and woman in this country ought to have a gun because that was their greatest deterrent to a government like England coming in and taking your home. Now they're saying that that doesn't mean that. It means the National Guard will come and protect you right. And what they're doing, they're looking at the Constitution and saying, it's a living document. We now have a right to decide what they really meant. No, you don't. It says what it says. You know they do the same thing with the Bible, Christianity, scholarship. They want to take the Bible that has been set, that is going to be the standard for all time, and they want to change it as society changes. Nuh-uh. The Bible is the only anchor point that a society change. You know it's a mess and to stay away from it because you've got a fixed absolute truth. But they want to change that. That's how it works. It's deceitful meat. A couple of Thursday nights ago, somebody asked a question, can you get saved in one of the new Bibles? And of course, uh, uh, you know, uh, we, we talked about that, and I, 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 and I told you. And, I, and, you know, and my position on it, and I don't really care one way or the other, but my position on it, basically for my own self, is that I know that the, you have the devil's church out there, and you may not be able to get saved by the devil's church, but people get saved in spite of the devil's church. And I think it probably follows the same line with the Bible's. And at the end of the day, when the Bible and your salvation, it has to do with your attitude or heart of where you're at with God. But that's a tough question. It really is. But whether I'm sure of that or not, here's what I am sure of when it comes to the new translations. I mean, you may be able to get saved or maybe not. That's immaterial. But I'll tell you one thing I'll guarantee you, you won't be able to do. You will not be able to grow. You will not be able to grow. And the proof of that is, is all the people out there that claim to be saved for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, they don't know any more about the Bible now than the day they got saved. 
You see, when it comes to knowing the Bible and dealing with deceitful meat, you sat down and you ate that crap every Sunday and you got deceived. You never diligently considered what was before you. I mean, we got, we got junk food Christians. I mean, we got junk food people in the world. All they eat is junk. I mean, their whole life is Hostess Twinkies and Ho-Hos and, and, and cupcakes. That's all they eat. I mean, their pockets are just filled with candy bars. That's all they eat. They eat junk all of their life, and they become um, a food junkie. And yet God's people do the same thing. There's no, there's no real meat, no real doctrine, no real feasting on the strong things of the Bible. And it all goes back that they got deceived. They, they didn't diligently consider what was before them. And it's a, it's a, it's a terrible thing. So well, now last week, see, you got a Bible that didn't come from God, and now you got a church that God's not showing up at, so now you're forced to get your bread out of desolate places. And that's what happens today. It's no wonder God's people's lives are a mess today. Listen, before I'd pick up a piece of godless trash like that, I would cut my own throat. And the Bible says, be not desirous of his dainties. What does that mean? His education, his degrees, his knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. Hey, I've been associated with churches for almost 50 years. When they look for a pastor, they bring somebody in. Uh, they don't ask him how many souls he's won to Christ. They don't ask him how many times he's read through the Bible. They don't ask him to give him an excerpt of breaking down the books of the Bible. They want to know how much education he's got. And you know what you get when you get that? Deceitful meats. That's what you get. That's exactly what you get. And uh, God's, uh, those things are absolutely worth it when it comes to God's Word. Now this proverb is a great illustration of how, as I said when we started, you use the Bible. I, I talked about a working knowledge of the Scripture, making the Bible work for you. Uh, he'll give you a verse like Proverbs chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, and then uh, throughout the Bible, he'll show you examples of that proverb that when you look at those examples, it makes the proverbs come to life and you make the application to what you've got to be part of based on what you see. I showed you 2 Samuel 13. I showed you 1 Samuel 20 and Esther chapter 7. Those are three places that told the Jew they better consider what's before them when they go to dinner. And Israel failed to use the Bible and so did God's people today. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and 11, it says that the things in the Old Testament that happened to Israel for our for examples and examples. We're to learn from them. The examples in the Bible are given to us so we can take the Bible and use the Bible instead of having to make a blind decision. That we can, we can observe something through the principles without just seeing it. And when you go through life using the principles that are taught throughout the Bible and base your decisions and your actions on those things, then the Bible is working for you. Uh, in the world, we have a saying. We all know the saying, and it's a very good saying, that we ought to work smarter and not harder. And that's a good concept. Using the things that you have to do the work for you. I mean, man used to walk everywhere he went. Then one day he looked at a horse, and he said, I wonder if I could ride that horse. So he saddled up the horse and galloped off. Then after he rode the horse for a while, he said, you know what, somebody invented something called a combustion engine. I wonder if we put that in something with wheels on it and powered it, if we could ride that. So he went from walking to a horse to a car. You know what he did? He's working smarter, not harder. 
man used to plow his garden and plow his fields with a, with a mattox and with all the hand tools. Then he got the idea, you know what? Instead of plowing this field by hand, which is taking me all day, I think I'll hook a plow to my horse. See what he can do with it. Then somebody said, you know that combustion engine that they put in cars? Yeah. Let's put it in a tractor. You see? People are using the things that they have. They're working smarter, not harder. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you're driving down the road and you see those big combines out in the fields? They're hotel rooms. They don't just get in there and plow. They have GPSs now that the guy just sits there, listens to his headphones, he watches TV, and that thing just goes off the GPS and it's air conditioned. He's got satellite TV in there. He's got a telephone in there. He's got everything he needs. He just sits there and watches it. The GPS drives the combine. It just goes down there, keeps the road straight from the satellite where he'd have to keep it on there. Now he can do it 24-7. He'd crawl in there and go to sleep, just push the buttons. That's working smarter, not harder. That's a long way from hooking it up to a horse. Everything in life, the world works 24-7 to make life easier for us. You know that? And I know we take it for granted. I remember, I remember when, when I was a kid growing up, my mom used to wash the dishes by hand. She didn't have a dishwasher. I mean, she used to sit there and my dad would help her. And, and, I, and I, I, you know, I learned a lot. My mom never said men always dry plates the wrong way. I never understood that. But they'd dry the plate, they'd wash them in the sink there. And then somebody made a dishwasher. Now, you know, instead of having a stack of dishes that you go up there and you're tired to look at, you just put it in the dishwasher, put some soap in, push a couple buttons, go on your way. And some of us complain about that. Well, I got to load the dishwasher. No, you don't. Wash them by hand. I remember when my mom got a new washing machine. It was two big tubs with a ruler, a roller. And after you wash the clothes, you put them in that roller and you cranked it through and it squeezed the water out. Then somebody said, let's just make a washing machine. Put it in there, close the door. Put the soap in, check twice that your youngest kid's not in there, and then push the button. <laughs> you go do what you want to do. My mom used to have my my mom used to have a clothesline. You kids don't even know what a clothesline is. <laughs> On Monday afternoon, Tuesday, it'd be like flag day at our house in the backyard. You had the clothes pops, and mom hung all the clothes out to dry. You don't do that anymore. You take them out of one, the washing machine, put them in the dryer, push the button, off they go. I mean, all life, everybody sits around trying to figure out how that you can work smarter and not harder. I remember when, I've told you this before, I remember when McDonald's started. McDonald's was the first of the, what we call the fast food restaurants. I remember it clearly. We went, Hamburg were 15 cents a piece. Friends were 10 cents. And on back then, you know, on the shine, it said only 20 sold. Now there's 20 zillion sold. And we've been out there, and that was called fast food. And for those that didn't want to, they wanted to make it easier. Mom works all day. Dad works all day. She doesn't want to have to slave over a hot stove, get in the car, drive to the fast food place. Go in there and order your food and come out. Then somebody thought, that fast food isn't fast enough. So they put a fast food drive through lane in the fast food restaurant place to make it easier for you. Now you don't even have to get out of your car. 
You just drive through the fast food lane, go to a little speaker, it'll talk to you, you tell it what you want, and you drive on up there, and there's a nice guy or gal give you the food, and you just drive on home. And somebody said, not even fast enough. Who want to make it easier? Why don't you have an Uber driver bring it to you? <laughs> just call Uber. And just tell him you want a Big Mac, the one that's pictured. He'll bring it over to you. You don't have to leave. Our whole world, everything around us. I mean, look at your car. If you hit something and back into something now, you've got to be an idiot. You've got 20 signals back there. Beep, 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 bang! And there's some even got them on the front. They got cars now that, that, that if somebody slams on the brake in front of you, there's sensors in the front of it that pick it up, and it puts the brakes on for you. You know why? Somebody wanted to make all that easier for you. And we just love that, don't we? Well, we buy it. We just buy all that stuff. I mean, everything that we want, we want to buy that way. But when it comes to the real issues of life and the book that God provided for us to do the work for us, we'll never take it. We simply won't use it. We won't let the Bible do what it was designed to do, and that is to do the work for us. We simply won't use it. In our Christian life, we will continue to work harder and not smarter, and the more complicated our life becomes, the more problem we have. You know, my job is simply showing you how to use the Bible to do the work for you, and let the Bible do what it does for you. You know, you're learning, and, and, and I know you don't get this, and it's okay. I don't expect you to. But I've spent 45, 46 years of my life learning that Bible. On one Thursday night, and I would never, I'm not saying this for any reason other than to make my point. On one Thursday night, in an hour and a half to two hours, you'll get laid out for you what probably took me six or seven years to get. You know why? Because my job is to make it easier for you, not harder for you. Now, if you went to most churches and you had Bible questions, yet I'd have to tell you you have to spend 75 years studying Greek and Hebrew. Or you have to go to this Bible college, this Bible college. You go away defeated or empty. I just tell you if the answers are in the book. And I've already got a lot of the answers, so I make it easier on you, just like the guy that developed the dishwasher and the washing machine, so you don't have to do all the work anymore. It's there, and then you take it, and then you let it work for you. I mean, that's how it works. And, you know, and, and, and I don't mean this in a wrong way, but you ought to appreciate that. Amen. It ought to mean something to you that you, somebody did the work that you don't have to do it. And I'll tell you, there may not always be somebody in your life that's going to do the work. Dr. Ruckman used to preach a message. And it was one of the most powerful messages that he ever preached. It was called the empty chair. And it was a message about that someday the chair in your life that is giving you everything that you need is going to be empty. And I never forgot that at his funeral. Uh, when they did the video, we saw the video. Most of you probably didn't pick it up because you didn't, you didn't, it, it started, it, it ended by going filming in his office and his chair being empty. And as the camera pulled back, his chair was now empty and the door closed. With reference to that message that someday, the person in your life that is giving you and spent all the time giving you the Bible like he did to us, that chair was empty. And I wonder how many people that was associated with him all of their life 
that got to have the opportunity to get all that he learned, never did a thing with it. And they're still struggling with their issues today. And now the chair is empty. And someday this chair will be empty. Someday this chair too will be empty. Now what you have to get and what you can get and what you don't get is going to determine where you go with it and what you do with it. I think one of the greatest stories about this found in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I preached this to you a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't, months ago, but I didn't, didn't talk about this particular aspect of it, but it's in the story of Mephibosheth. And you know the story of Mephibosheth. It's the picture of the day and you and I got saved. And it's a picture of Mephibosheth who was Saul's son through Jonathan, um, was the enemy of David, much like uh, the two families, you're of your father the devil. And by every right, David, a type of Christ, should have killed him. But David didn't. David went out and fetched him and used Zeba, a type of the Holy Spirit of God, to bring him in. And the Bible says that he brings him in and he makes him one of his sons. And he's lame on his feet. And he's a filthy beggar, just like you and I were before we got saved. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the rest of his life, he sits at David's table. Picture you and me feasting at the table. And he says, all of my servants are going to do the work for you. You just stay at the table feasting with the king. And let all of the servants, the Holy Spirit of God, do all the work for you. It doesn't get any easier than that. It doesn't get any easier than that. That God has given you a Bible that will make your life harder, or make your life easier. We make it harder because we don't use it smarter. And God has given you a Bible that will do everything for you that it needs to be done. It will lay out, it will give you a working knowledge. In other words, it will show you and work for you in every aspect of your life that you never have to get caught up in all that again. But you need to learn, not just to see, but to observe the process of defining and discerning what is of God and what is not of God in your life. And he says, you stay at the table eating and fellowshipping with the king and all the servants will do thy work for you. That's a great picture of sitting down with the seven-course meal that God has put together for you. You know, I'm driving over here this morning for church and I, on Nolan Road, I go right past that little blue church there that's right there uh, and there. And they had on the marquee uh, something that I thought about. I thought to myself, boy, that is so true. And it said on the marquee, Bibles that are falling apart are usually owned by people who are not. And that is so true. Bibles that are falling apart are usually owned by people who are not. Because they've learned through the Word of God to let it do the work for them. And this is what I mean when I tell you about a working knowledge of the Word of God. It doing the work for you and making your life easier, just like all the appliances that you have in your home. And we take all of them and enjoy them and couldn't live without them. If you had to go home without your iron, without your washing machine, without your air conditioning, without all of those things, you would have a fit. But you go through life as a Christian not needing this till you get in the jam. And then you just pick and choose what you want to do with it. Don't tell me Christianity isn't in a mess. Proverbs 23 only gets better from here. 
That's our word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed.